Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. Today's episode is a real treat. We're joined by the director of Nomadland, Chloe Zhao, and her collaborator and director of photography, Joshua James Richards. They join Asif Kapadia for a fascinating discussion about creating the film that's been generating critical raves and tearing up awards season. From blending fact and fiction, shooting with natural light, and working with Francis McDormand, this talk is a celebration of filmmaking. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Chloe. Welcome, Joshua. Um, I'm Asif. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about your brilliant film, Nomadland, um, for the Directors UK, uh, which is lots of filmmakers, lots of directors here in the UK, kind of the equivalent of the DGA. So welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Asif. Having us. So I've got, I've got loads of questions. Hopefully we're going to have enough time. I wanna, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a director, and I work in fiction and in nonfiction. So your work is particularly kind of like really lands with me because of that kind of space that you're working within. So I'm, I've got so many things, we may jump around. If at some point one of you has something that you think, ah, there's something relevant, then please just jump in, okay? Make it a conversation. Can we start at the beginning? Where did this idea come from, Chloe? Well, I got an email from Francis McDormand and I said, read this book. <laughs> and uh, at that time, actually, you know, both Josh and I were thinking about making something about young people living on the road. Because just because making the first two films, we spent so much time being on the road. And it just, I, I went, oh, wow, you know, this is what a coincidence. And what I didn't realize was um, the film, the book was so much about people of the baby boomer generation. Um, so, so that, you know, the idea of exploring the world from, people who are in their 60s and 70s, 80s was really interesting to us. So that was the beginning of it. And Joshua, when did you become aware of the project? How, how's this working relationship between the two of you? Well, like Chloe says, we, we were already kind of discuss, discussing future projects. Um, one of which was, I do remember, was, was a road movie. It was about a young girl originally, wasn't it? It was called Bobcat. Ah, that's right. Yeah, sort of a rough, a rough draft. So you know, we tend to already by the end of the ride. I think we were already talking about the next projects because you know you. I'm sure um, we're not the first filmmakers to say it, but it really does become about the work. So I'm sure, as you know, as if you know, you want to make sure you got the next project lined up because um, that's really what it's all about for Chloe and I. It's just keep generating ideas and coming up with our with new content. And so, and so what was it about this particular book then that landed with you, Chloe? What was it that was in there that you thought, okay, this is the next one? You know, for us, um, we don't talk enough about world building in, in, in small independent film, but it's actually everything. You know, we, we really want the audience to feel immersed in, in whichever world we lead them into. And Jessica Bruder's book, Really, you know, she did not, it wasn't just about the politics and then a few people, but she captured a time in America. Everything from working at an Amazon warehouse to a town called Empire in Nevada, that uh, one of the longest run, running mine in America, a company town, the Shadow. You know, so she was documenting a, a time where a way of life in America was disappearing. And, um, and I just was so fascinated by it. And right away we thought, okay, we need to figure out a way how to incorporate all these things into a film. And, and it was a non-fiction book, is that right? Yes, non-fiction. And Fern's character doesn't exist in, in, in the book. Okay, what were so you gonna say, Josh? Well, I was gonna mention, Chloe, there was a, a strange level of sort of serendipity to it, wasn't there? Because um, leading up to, before we got the book, I said, Chloe was looking at, van life and, and reading about, um, you know, more economical ways of living on the road in America. For, she was reading about that for probably a year before yeah. we ever got um, a call from France. So it was quite amazing that it came along. It, it just seemed perfect. Can I just do a little flashback? How did you two both meet? Well, Chloe and I were both at NYU together. She was a few years um, above me and um, just chatting about uh, upcoming projects again in uh, at the bar which was right next to it's called the apple bar which i spent much too much time in um 
And uh, Chloe was making, she was in the very early stages of doing songs my brothers taught me. And so we, um, we just really saw eye to eye on kind of films we wanted to make and the sort of ambitions that we had for making films because not everyone was traveling across the country to South Dakota to a, an Indian reservation to make their thesis. So I, I was, yeah, I guess I was instantly drawn to Chloe's um, sort of boldness and her, her, uh, her bravery really as a filmmaker because I, I just I just wanted to be a part of that and um, yeah, it started there really. And how would you describe Chloe and, and Josh I guess your style what is it that you two do how is it you collaborate what is the kind of tone that you're looking for in your work or the type of characters you're looking for in your stories? Well each film is different um, and we we happen to together um, you know grow through three films that share a very similar way of filmmaking. Um, where we go from here, we don't know. But, but uh, uh, in those three films, we've learned that um, we enter into a world and we populate the world with characters that are authentic to it. And then we set a set of rules ahead of time of how we want to make the film, both how we want our crew to, to behave, how, how we treat unpredictable weather you know and, and what lenses we use and and then lots of planning and then once we go into the actual days of filming there's a lot of uh, allowing things to happen and Josh has a lot of freedom not a lot but 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 more than usual to move around and to find those moments would you say Josh? Style's a tricky question, isn't it, Asif? Um, where does one's style come from? I think for Chloe and I, uh, in terms of finding one's voice or finding one's style, we definitely kind of discovered it, I think, on our first film, Songs. There was a style that definitely came out of the limitations of that shoot, actually. I think we, we were fresh out of film school. I, I almost consider Songs almost like my real education as a filmmaker, in a way or my, my training, my first crash course, if you like. And um, that was us getting thrown in at the deep end and okay, now go, now swim. And so I, I look in reflection, looking back at that, I realized the style developed organically, wouldn't you say, Chloe, in a way? Um, because yes, like, as I say, limitations, you know, you know, you're gonna have a very small crew. You're gonna have very little grip equipment, very little lighting. These are the things that you then learn to utilize that find their way into the, into the style, I suppose. But um, we definitely had filmmakers, didn't we, Chloe, in, in mind mm -hmm. from the beginning. We were really into Chris Doyle and Wonka Wai's stuff that they had been doing and definitely both um, interested in what Chivo and, and Terence Malick were doing. And we, we, we always found that quite progressive, I suppose, didn't we, Chloe? New, new ways of getting closer to characters and and having a, a, an audience feel more absorbed or whatever words you want to use. Um, but but that, that was really the language we were going towards, wasn't it? A more... Yeah, and, for, and philosophically, Werner, uh, Werner Herzog. Of course, yeah. About, about, you know, holding the camera long enough on something that you can't, you know, not flinch uh, to, to find these moments of, of truth, really that audiences might not be able to deny. I think that's something Werner, stylistically it might be different than what we do, but philosophically, we always think about him. Fantastic. Okay, I'm gonna come back to your kind of set of parameters and rules later. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me um, something about the adaptation process? How did, how did that work on, on this? And how did you, did you know which characters from the book you were gonna then try to incorporate in the script and the story as well in the shooting? It was a mixture of, you know, there might be five characters that I, I loved uh, in, the, in the book. And then out of three, I thought could act <laughs> on camera once I met them, uh, could fit into it. So uh, Jessica, again, done a great job because she intuitively, I think there's a storyteller in herself as well. She intuitively was drawing to characters that really represent the spirit and the soul of of the road that she loves. So that's already, she already picked them for, for me. And for, for me, there was almost too many great characters and I just had to see who can handle the camera. Um, and then we, we did, we are very lucky. We ended up with three, uh, Linda May, Bob Wells and Swanky. They were the key characters in the book and they just happened to be really good actors as well. 
So, so can you tell me a little bit about that process? Did you actually put them on camera? Did you do rehearsals? Was Joshua part of that process? How did you decide, or was it without any technical equipment? You were just kind of working with them to see if they could perform. With Bob Wells, because he he has a website and he teaches, and we knew he was going to be great on camera. And um, Swanky and Linda May, we met them on a big trip that the we took, and then we filmed them with uh, Josh filmed them with the iPhone while I asked them questions. And because we've done this so many times with songs and the writer, we almost knew right away if someone's going to be able to do it. And also, there's another part of the process which is my involvement in the editing process. Um, having done the first cut of my previous two films and, and then also a lot more uh, later in the editing process, Josh knew what I'm looking for in terms of um, how I'm going to put things together. So by looking at someone on an iPhone talking, we kind of knew if that's going to be enough for us to put a scene together for them. Got it. Okay. So was that process happening as you were writing? Or did you write it and then go off and meet people? No, I, I, as we were, I, as I was writing. So that really long trip that we took, uh, like <laughs> too long, in our van, Akira, living in it. Um, I think towards the end of the trip, we were in Eugene, Oregon, is when the, the story, the treatment came, came about. We go, okay, so, this is a movie. So you're writing... And you're shooting, you're finding your locations and your cast all at the same time. Is that, is that part of that road trip process? Yeah, I was shooting with a phone, with an iPhone. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you say your, your van's called Akira? Yes. So our eldest son, look at that. Oh, really? I was wondering the, the painting behind you. That's a, that's a beautiful, yeah, that's a Japanese. Oh, oh great. Because I, I named it after Akira Sendo, which is my favorite manga character. It's not the book, it's not the, the anime movie, which most people think I've named after. I love that name. So, That's funny. <laughs> so, so um, okay, tell me a bit about the, the, the team. How, what is the core team that you guys work with? How many people? Who's part of it? Who's been part of the journey of the films that you've made together? Was it any, um, how big is your camera crew, Josh, when you're, when you're out there doing this? Really, uh, the camera. The camera team on um, Nomadland was me and two others. Uh, it's just me and my um, AC Charles, my trusty AC Charles, who we've worked with mostly in commercials, actually. This was our first feature together. But um, And then uh, in the grip department, I just had one guy, Nick Lonstrom, and then I had one, and then I had my gaffer, uh, Matt um, Atwood. And um, it was exactly the right amount of people, I would say. Um, for what we were trying to do. Um, and then but around that, of course, then we have Chloe, you know, the, we have um, the producing team, we have Molly Asher, who's been our long, long-term long collaborator. Molly was with us on The Rider and Songs. Um, then Gem V, our, produ our producing team, who were, Chloe, I mean, you could probably talk better about that. Yeah. So did you do a scout of the whole trip, Chloe? Did you know exactly where you were going to be shooting and where you wanted to do certain sequences and then have to set that up in ahead of the time? Well, it's, um, I, I like to think of looking back at it divided by three chunks. You know, there's a third that was that, that were in Jessica's book. These places like Empire, Nebraska, Scotts Bluff, uh, beet harvesting, places like that. And then there's another third of places that Josh and I love, you know, South Dakota, the Badlands. And there's another third that came out of Francis because um, Fern is very much a version of Fern. So the, the, the California coast and the redwoods, these places means a lot to her. So we incorporated that into it. So, but, and, and back to the crew, what's the thing, you know, like you want to draw a circle in school that you, what, what's that thing called? And then you make uh, it, it goes around. Oh, I should know that. It's a compass. A compass, yeah. You know, if you think about our crew, it, both on the last three films, it's like a compass in the sense that if the camera is in the middle, with me, Josh, and Wolf, our amazing uh, sound person. The three of us is, is a dance with our actor. And it's, it's, it's funny to see usually everyone else disappears very far away on the peripheral. And then when we move, they all <laughs> move and dodge out of the way in the 360 setting. So the only difference between Nomadland and the previous films is that whoever is on the outer skirt that was making things happen for us got a lot bigger. But the core stayed the same, and they knew very well that the core must remain small 
and uh, uh, very mobile. Um, it's just well, whoever's outside got a lot. Okay. All right. So again, we're kind of jumping around, but there's loads there that I want to come back to. So tell me a little bit about the casting of that kind of the well-known actors and how you did the process of mixing the kind of professional actors with the non-professional. Well, there are two things that we had, we knew that we had to do. One is Fern and David, you know, and they, they really, including Melissa Smith, who played uh, Fern's sister, who's also a trained actress. Uh, we asked them if they are comfortable playing a version of themselves as opposed to me creating you know, a, a total character for them to transform themselves, which we know they can do. They're some of the best actors we have today. Um, but because all the other non-professional actors are going to play a version of themselves, and for the only way for it to really gel is if I can create firm based on friend. And, they, and David as well, I mean, his name is Dave. And, and even the, the, the young man that played his son is his real son in real life. Um, so they were very generous and they, they knew that's what the process needs. So the writing is a big part of it. And then the other one, um, I don't remember what the other one was. The other part was how then, how, I mean, how do you then incorporate the non-professional actors into the scenes? Do you rehearse a lot? Do you spend a lot of time with them all spending time together? What's, what's the kind of working process before you're on set? That process is, you know, the, the trip that Josh and I talk and also some other time that we've spent with them, they would tell us a lot of their stories about their lives. And from those recordings, I would pick the parts where I think says a lot about who they are. And, and then there's a spine, which is Fern's story. And then we even change Fern's story in a way. So certain things the non-professional actor did say could be incorporated. So then those words were written into the script. Usually traditionally you've done this kind of research, you have an actor play those words. This time the person we research from is playing that. And on the day, obviously they, they go off, uh, they could go off, but that they, they have a blueprint. Do you rehearse? Do you actually get them in a room together previously to the shoot or do you leave that to when you're on set? On set. I, I don't think we've rehearsed once uh, unless it's on set, you know, they quickly run lines. Okay, fantastic. Um, so tell me a little bit about the other kind of technical aspects in terms of costumes and production design and prop masters and things like that, all the other stuff, you know, how does, how do you create the look? I mean, do, are there any sets in the film at all? Or are they all real locations and real vans? The, the, they're all real locations, as if, yeah, or, um, you know, the only real build on the film, I would say, is um, Vanguard itself, Firm's van. Um, and I mean, it, it's certainly the look of the film obviously has its naturalism, so it has to grow out of what's already there. Um, but, you know, we, we would have sort of thematic ideas and, you know, concepts, wouldn't we, Chloe, about how we want it to feel inside uh, the van or, or colours that we, we felt needed to be omitted or, you know, ways in which to take on this sort of dogma uh, 95 approach in a way, um, but then bring in the poetry and, and, and heighten it where where it's appropriate but also you're you're really like following emotion aren't you I, I guess is the the simplest answer is we always like discuss emotion and that then that let that lead the images I suppose well you know Josh come from a um um a fine arts background painting and uh we uh what's the name of the painter Andrew Andrew Wiles Wiles yeah we we definitely look at his paintings a lot in terms of the inside of Vanguard, uh, Vanguard the, the colors. And another thing that Josh has, um, uh, he's, he's so good at that we have been collaborating in that way in the last two films is when he's looking at a costume as well. Um, for example, that coat that, that Fern's wearing, the, the one that the, her husband left behind. And in Josh, in his mind, like that, that color, when he's in certain landscape, is going to stand out. I think those things are always in his subconscious. So then when he's working with Hannah Peters and our costume person, they, they were very minimalistically, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to do simple, but they were actually, uh, every little decision that they did end up making that to put on screen things that they wanted to make choices of. These are very specific choices 
Um, and then I think they create a very strong identity for fern visually. And the costume as well, as if it was, you know, fun to work with the, the nomads and, you know, we would just look at, go into their van and look at what they have and then, and see what works for the character, see what works for the, and for the most part, I would say the approach to this film, you know, no, we didn't make the things with our, we didn't, they're, they're not artificially made. Other than that, the process is probably the same as on every other film. The only thing that really changes is where we got the thing. We took the things from the real world, but the way we chose to use them, I think wasn't really that different to other productions Chloe and I've worked on. Um, it, was, it was also chasing this thing constantly as if of what makes something, creating an iconography in the film. Um, these images that you can't quite explain why, but they stick in your head. Those are always my favorite movies. I remember scenes and images. I can rarely tell you what the movie was about. And that's always mysterious to me, like why we remember something. And so, you know, in our travels, Chloe and I, it wasn't about ticking the, um, the kind of typical postcard spots necessarily, but maybe a hidden America, a kind of, this sort of homespun America that we've come to know in places like South Dakota. So you know you're going to get things like the dinosaur, wall drug. You know we're going to have, you know, I, I did, I had this image of Fran holding this little lamp and just her fragility in this vast open landscape. So you start with images like that and you're constantly drawing from photography. I mean, there's almost too many photographers to list on Nomadland, isn't there, Chloe? I feel like we were looking at uh, photographers like Eggleston and um, Gertzi more than we were taking sort of film examples um, on this. Yeah, it just seemed to, it didn't feel or look like any, any other film that I had in my head. So it was really letting um, photographers and masters in that lead the way, wasn't it visually, I think. Well, another thing I think we only realized, I mean, again, you learn every after every film, right? Like you, you learn. Um, we recently watched Fargo again and realizing why some of these images in Fargo, right? Like friend in that outfit in the snow with a car and then with someone lie back in the snow. Like why these images stick in our head for so long? And then that big sculpture as they go into the town is that there's a specificity, how do you say, Josh? Like a, a, yeah, to it, you know, it's, it's very specific. It's not just a car, it's a, whatever the make is, you know, and it's the same thing with, it's not just another place, but it's wardrobe, South Dakota. There's something about capturing these specific places that actually makes them very universal and, and iconic. Yeah, I think that it's, that's one of the real powers of the film is that, you know, it's not touristy spots, you know, the places that you're showing are not where, you know, the tourists would go to. It's the bit behind the scenes, off the road. You need to know the road to know the road to find that spot. And I and think that's what would... really comes across. And anyone who's spent enough time, and I, I do mean enough time, uh, traveling around on the road in America, you, you start to realize that it is uh, uh, discoveries of these little hidden gems that you just can't quite believe are there and you've never heard of. And um, yeah, Chloe, you know, I guess that that's really come out of our personal experience of, of traveling for the other movies and finding these places that became dear to us. So, so going into detail on this specific film, and, and if you want to kind of refer to the rider and other you know, previous films as well, tell me uh, about the kind of set of rules, your dogma rules that you created for shooting this film. Give me an example of a, a sequence where you may have a mixture of professional and non-professional actors on location. Like, when does your day begin? How much time do you have to prep? When do you, you know, how does, how does it all work? For example, I mean, is it all single camera? Do you have more than one camera? Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, we had... It was a single camera shoot, but what was absolutely vital was always having two cameras ready. Uh, so by that, I mean that Charles Bay had an Amira ready to go on my shoulder or on the Easy Rig. But then we also had the Mini on the, the Ronan uh, gimbal, the Ronan 2 gimbal that was ready to go at all times, all the time. Sounds simple, but it really made the shoot possible. So, you know, any particular um, situation comes up and as an operator, I feel ready to handle it with no wait time whatsoever. I've been on productions 10 times the size where that didn't seem possible. 
So I, I and all of your equipment is it all in just a truck somewhere? Are you have you got a van that's following the crew around? Yeah, we just have a small um, uh, sprinter, and that would basic for the most part that would blend in with the, the vans that were there. So it could even be in the shot at times. I'm pretty sure it is in the shot a few times. But yeah, we would just close the door, throw a tarp over it, and that's where all the equipment is. Um, so How much lighting is there in the film? Uh, lighting. Lighting. Uh, artificial uh, lighting. Um, artif well, I was just using available lighting mostly. I did have sky panels and um, a lot of light sticks and ribbons and things maybe to complement things here and there or wrap things in the van. Uh, but for mostly one of the first and form biggest rules of a shoot like this is embrace natural light wherever possible. Um, one, I really think cameras are allowing us to do that more and more, uh, mm. the technology, but also it, it is to do with freedom. Um, it's to give Chloe the freedom she wants with the actors, but also aesthetically, it's something that I've really enjoyed uh, embracing in my career. And I don't see and for me personally Steve the, the things I get excited about are the constant changes in natural light <laughs> well the lighting I mean, you, Chloe. Know, be, be, sorry sorry go ahead go ahead um because we wake up in the morning right I usually have new pages because the night before we watch dailies I'll watch dailies and I will, will write based on you know what we got still following the script but um changing things up the first thing the, the the poor producers before they can finish their breakfast they're oh my god okay we're going to make these things happen and then we wait we we um because we've decided because we only can shoot certain hours so we, we realized chasing it is not as good as waiting for the the light and so then we shoot anything we can i think i, I we barely shot before 11 or 12 o'clock and then we shoot the stuff that are interior in the van or we're outside that, you know, and Josh always have, you know, we, 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 we knew we had only these four, four, Josh, would you say lenses that we would use and, and no more than that. Yeah. Which lenses then, did you stick with then in the end? We were shooting on the ultra primes, but mostly in terms of lengths, you know, it was wides on a 16 and then close-ups on a, on the, on the 35 or the 32. Two, whatever it is, and yeah. yeah, two, yeah. And then, uh, what you know, during those uh, harsher hours, we always block the scene away for light. Um, Josh always shoot the actors against the sun, uh, we backlight them as much as possible. Um, and then everybody gets very anxious in the stomach around four o'clock because magic hour is about to happen, and there's a lot of planning goes into it. And, and then when the time hits. By the end of the shoot, it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Everyone knows exactly where they need to be. No one questions anything. Everyone dug out of the way, risking their lives or literally like run and hide. Um, and then we, we really value these beautiful half an hour to 45 minutes. Um, and, then, and then we all go back to the hotel and have a beer. And within that, how many takes are you doing? Or are you, and is it all being shot chronologically? Well, we're doing, I mean, we, we, we schedule it very carefully. Like we, we, we have learned two films in a row. You can't fight time. You know, we, we really, sometimes a sequence, both in The Rider and Nomadland, a sequence that happened in that beautiful blue will be shot in three days. And we would like uh, three days, at, at, like at that last 10 minutes, right? And so there's a few moments in Nomadland as well. It's shot in two different days. Um, just so that we can get that. So we even within that magic hour, the variety of magic hour, we schedule very carefully. So our scheduling is completely based on light. So I've got to ask then about the rider while we're, while we're talking. The training of the horse, how long did you spend shooting that and how many days did that kind of that incredible moment in that film? How did you do that? That's three days. The first time Brady got on that horse, everything happened in blue, right, Josh? That happened in... in Steve, do you mean when he's training the horse with the yeah. sun? In the yeah. Background? Well, he's basically oh. breaking the horse down, you know, that, that incredible sequence. That I don't know how long it is in screen time, but it's beautiful. And, you know, if anything, for me, that film was when I first became aware of your work, both of you, and also seeing something that is just 
beautiful and moving and natural and the perfect kind of mixture between light and nature and people and performance and is it real is it acting you know you just it was sublime so how do you shoot that well Brady is you know when you're training a horse you are acting he would say like I'm performing to the horse to try to get the horse to to open up and and, and we were shooting something else at that time actually there were some you know Jack was rigging a car for a car shot and then um, the place we were at is, is the, an actor of, of uh, uh, from our first film. And then he went to Brady and asked him to break, so that I have a horse here that no one can get out. Can you give it a go? And then Brady said, am I allowed to, Chloe? Oh, I guess so. And then, and then he started doing it. And we're both looking at it go like, well, I think we should shoot that. We just got lucky that wherever he was standing, the, the sound was going to set behind it. And it was about, about 45 minutes, right, Josh? Like two 25-minute takes until we ran out of card. Um, Altogether, all it's about 45 minutes uh, until he was able to go on that horse and then start riding. But was that done in one day then, that particular shoot? It's continuous. And another thing that's a little less glamorous to talk about and it's actually quite painful for me is the, uh, <laughs> it's something again I have learned writing and editing is that in order to work this way and to actually harvest the fruit of a production where everyone is discovering, you have to come up with a narrative for a script that isn't too strict um, a list to B, list to C for, for a first movie to work. That's something I struggled intensely on my first film. And fortunately, we lost the money. I wrote 30 drafts of a script that really even have a thriller element that ha things has to happen rigidly like a traditional film. When the money was gone, I, I was, it was breaking my heart because I knew spontaneously there's things going to happen and a lot of things I wanted to include. So when the money was gone, the freedom of going, okay, well then I just need a very simple story. And then, because I know it's almost guaranteed because we made the sacrifice of not having to stick to certain things or build a set on a stage to control it, whoever's up there is going to give us some other rewards. And that rewards can only be included if the story is going to work, whether I get that on that day or not. And in the edit room, it's the anxiety every day. Go, is there enough? Is there enough? But Chloe, that, but it's interesting though, isn't it? Because you still have to be really good. When the moments show themselves, you have to be on your feet to know if you can use it or not or where you can use it, right? Well, that's the, that's the I think, the blessing and the curse of being an editor-director is that you, you are constantly thinking about in a scene, if something happened, then I need these coverage to make that moment work. It's not always fun for your actors. <laughs> Because <laughs> they don't know, sorry, it's my dog, because they don't know what's in your head. Uh, but again, having Josh as a partner and friend as well, uh, she's such a professional, you know, she knows exactly why we're asking her to do five different emotions in a row for no reason. And Josh knows almost exactly how I'm going to edit things. So I always look at him, I go, do I have enough? And he's like, just about. And then we go, okay, I think we're gonna be okay. So that's a really important thing there because are you because you're working with non-professional actors, are you kind of having to shoot them first and then are you covering Fran later to cover all of the options? You shoot out one direction. Yeah, poor Fran always gets rushed at the very end, you know. Right at the ending. The pro gets right <laughs> last. We'll, we'll do like uh if we have about an hour to do it, we'll do like 50 minutes on a non-professional actor and then go back to Friday. and like, I know you want to live the moment, but I need 10 different expressions, go. <laughs> no, and you feel bad a bit because she got five minutes and you're like, yeah, good job, Fran. Anyway, next shot. Yeah. She's done all this amazing stuff off camera to get the performance from the yeah, exactly. other person, I guess, of course, yeah. yeah. And obviously she's a producer as well. So she's got so many hats on herself during the whole process. Yeah, I mean, she. I think she understand um, Look, she saw the writer at Toronto and she said, I think that's the filmmaker because I think whether she knows how or not, deep inside she knew there's another way to make this film. She has read the book by then. And for, for us, it's, to, it's the, 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 the dance of like figuring out how to, how to, she came into my world. So it was easier for me than her, you know? And, and I think both as an actress with that much experience, I want to try something different. And as a producer who sees a bigger picture,
I think that made her be able to <laughs> give me that 10 performance at the last minute like that. Because I did learn a lot, Chloe, in retrospect. Nassif, I, I realised with, because with, um, it was the first time I'd worked with an actor like Frances McDormand of that calibre. Mm -hmm. I mean, I barely worked with actors. But she's such a storyteller as well, isn't she? Mm -hmm. like, you agree? Yeah. You know, yeah. Fran, that's, that was what was really a privilege to, I, I do have to say that I learned a lot from that, watching her behind the camera and, the, and, and just, yeah. she's more than an actor, you know. I think those, well, I think those kind of actors, wouldn't, you, wouldn't we all agree, they are a bit more, aren't they? They are, they're storytellers as much as the filmmakers are, the Daniel Days and the Brandos and the Francis McDormans. I think it's almost like she would have been good at anything Fran wanted to do, it just happened to be acting, you know, and, and mm -hmm. she, anyway, I, I was just really impressed with the storytelling she brought to it as well. And the yeah. discussions Chloe and Fran would have were pretty fascinating. I mean, my, my thought is, you know, one, one moment I was thinking about talking to you both was the, the film is about a community, about this kind of almost secret community and filmmaking is all about the community. And you've found a way to put together the perfect team in order to create that kind of film. You've got to be a part of the community or it's not going to work, is it? It's not going to, the system falls apart. That's like the biggest compliment you could give us probably. And that's why you need directors like Chloe uh, in charge because that's where, that's what she starts with is how, do, how to do this the right way. So what, what I haven't mentioned yet and I'm going to mention it now is, you know, this is a studio film. So, you know, traditionally there'd be trailers and trucks and execs coming to visit you. And so part of your process, Chloe, did you have to at some point sort of lay down some rules to the, to the, to the suits to say, this is how I have to work or else? I mean, how, do you, how did you navigate that part of it? I'm, I'm assuming there's a leap from making the rider to trying to make this. Well, the suits did come to San. They stayed at Motel 6 as well. <laughs> And they were not wearing suits. <laughs> they were wearing, we have a, we, we did a five gallon bucket is our company's name. You know, they, we, they have a cat with a poop bucket on it and they wore those. Um, I, look, I, for, very earlier on, and I, I think uh, Josh and I feel both very fortunate that we, we realized that if we be truthful to how we want to work and how we want to treat other people and be treated, and uh, the philosophy of, of how we want to tell stories, we stick to that without compromise, we're going to attract the right people. I think the writer is a film that attracts a group of right people that are right for us to us. If we went ahead and made a different movie after songs or made songs different way or made the writer different, we would have attracted a, a different type of people. So we never knew the writer was going to have the success he did, but we knew he was going to bring the right people to us. And, and, Searchlight was Fran, Peter, Molly, Dan, Searchlight, our producers were the right people. You know, they knew very early on, they want the film to be how we want to make it. Uh, there is zero um, this, you know, it's, I, I go to them begging for more notes all the time. I say, I need more notes because it's a pandemic, I'm stuck at home and I'm editing, you know, and it, they, they are extremely helpful um, in that process. Because we all know when we go into a film like this, the kind of criticism that's going to be thrown at it straight off the court. <laughs> no, Hollywood doing poverty, you know? Oh, okay. And, oh. It, and it has, and it, you know, you do kind of walk that tricky line. You do, you're very aware of how badly that can go, but it can't go badly if it's done the right way. You know, yeah, I almost don't, we almost don't think about that because we have only made film in a, in a, in a way we find to be truthful and we can only go by that. Yeah, and if someone wants to interpret it that way, that's absolutely fine and their right to do so. But we know uh, the intention and we know the way in which it was done. And we know that we basically made a, f a film with our friends who, who were nomads in the desert. So if you have a problem with people of that economic situation being in movies, then it's not for you. But they wanted to be in a movie and they acted in a movie and that's pretty much that's it but that's that's because of the spirit in which chloe and the producers did it i mean they truly were not the suits on this i mean peter spears came he's the one who found the book chloe wasn't he yeah so they, they were as committed to doing this 
I mean, that's why they came to Chloe, I think. Well, I, I, I think after this is again, it's, you, you mentioned it, it's to be honest up front. Like I, I hear a lot of these horrified, sto horrifying stories of directors being treated a certain way and vice versa. I think a lot of that is that initially people aren't honest with each other. And even from the very beginning, I'm always up for, for example, as an editor, I'm all about test screenings. I love, doesn't matter how big the film, how small it is, I love doing audience screenings because the film to me is, is a sharing process. And when the audience screening happened in, in Nomadland, I took the notes, I did a version, and it was people from search, I go, it might be too fast, Chloe, you need to slow it down because you, you usually don't get that from a studio. Like they're like, Chloe, you're listening too much of the notes. Like slow down, the film needs to breathe. And I was like, really? Okay, uh, so so then this you know you got the right partners with mom and you can trust them. Therefore, you can allow your baby to be tested because you know they're not going to take advantage of those saturation to try to do something to it that's for a profit or anything else. And that trust needs to be established from the very beginning. I, I think that obviously comes down to your confidence also as a filmmaker to know what you believe in and what you want to do in this and how you work, which you've done because you've made these films in the same way with the same family, the same communities. And that's that's the integrity that I think that comes across so well. Okay, I'm, 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 I don't know how much time we've got, not load. Um, I wanted to ask about when does the pandemic start affecting this project? When were you aware of this thing and, how, and when did it hit you? Well, the timeline is a bit off because we wrapped in February 2019. And then we start shooting September 2018. And then I jumped straight into prep for internals and Josh worked on internals as well. So we were, we were in London all the way until February, 2020, we got home immediately. Everything is quarantined. Um, and then I started and internals was shut down and I, and I started editing Nomadland in March. Was that always the plan? You shot it and you put it away while you were doing the other, <laughs> other studio No, I, just, I got a gig. I got a Marvel gig like while I was prepping. Like literally, I think I heard I got the job the two days before we started shooting Nomadland. So uh, I think it's just great that they happen to be in the same company. Everyone just worked it out, you know, and I think, I think in retrospect, people might have maybe they're relating to Nomala in a way they never would if the pandemic hasn't hit, you know, not that say we planned it, but I, I think it worked out, thankfully. Um, I, yeah, and and uh, and then from March, starting from somewhere mid-March to September, you know, when we premiered the film, that was the editing and the post-production period. And doing that during the pandemic was an interesting experience, but again, everyone was very supportive, so. And just going back to you, Josh, actually, I had a little technical question from earlier on. There are lots of car scenes. So how did you decide to shoot all of the car scenes? How were they done? That was def that was another one of those rules, I see. I think you can get really carried away easily as, an, as a, a cinematographer with car stuff and finding angles that become very arbitrary. And so we just we just liked sticking to that singular when you come in, there's this familiarity and, and a because we jump around to so many locations in Nomadland, um, mm -hmm. Chloe and I talked a lot about a very simple kind of tapestry. Is it so if there's a close up in this kind of scene where they're talking about their past or something personal, it's this. If Fran's driving, it's probably going to be a profile and it's that with the landscape outside and we would set the stop, how much we want to see the landscape. And so it was really coming up with, you know, giving the audience an anchor every time they come somewhere, you know, visually it's like, okay, here we are. And, and I think that that's really important to the storytelling, very specific framing tapestry for each given situation. I think was really important. Fantastic. Um, Chloe, do you want to talk a little bit about music and how you came about the soundtrack, the music, the score and the sound design as well, those two aspects during the pandemic? I mean, do you know, for example, the music, before you've shot the film or when you're shooting it or does that all come into the post? It was one of those things I tried to put off as late as possible because I was so anxious because I knew music was everything. Well, for, for a film like this, that is this episodic, that moves in time, you need the right music. And it was, and the edit didn't really come together until I found Ludovico and Audi's music. And I did that by Googling uh, beautiful music inspired by nature. 
when you're in a Easy. pandemic, you know, like <laughs> safest place is the internet. Uh, well, and then so so then again, he is a a a, a musician, a, a, an artist that's so inspired by nature. You know, the the music that I pull the most is from uh, Seven Days Walking. Is <laughs> sorry, my dog. Uh, is the <laughs> Um, your, your dog uh, doesn't uh, like talking about the music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the music. Oh, hold on, let's let me get him and re-answer this question. Um, the the music that um, I use mostly from his Seven Days Walking, which is something that he wrote by walking in the Alps. Um, and and when you listen to that music, and when 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 it fits while Fern is walking through the badlands, you and the, this music is universal because it has a, a connection to nature, um, and uh, the sound design then comes in. A, a conversation we've had very much was how like how do we, how much can we stick to the realism of the sound that's there and an immersive experience? Because when you're out there by yourself for for a long time, your ears adjust to silence more and you hear things more, you know? So, so the idea of hearing wind and hearing snow, sometimes when you're inside is through the crickling of the van, you know, and the identity of this, this van, but be, both being a home, but also, you know, still, she's still exposed to nature all the time. And the part of the sound, and so, so the, uh, um, um, Sergio, who done an amazing soundscape, just she, he, he sound designed so many beautiful elements. And then, and, and Zach did an incredible job also, both of them mixing it together. Um, the, the area that's the most creative part, which was these montages. Like these montage, there was a lot of conversation to be had because if you're in the car, you just, all you hear is sound of the engine. And we're trying to create an emotional soundscape with both the piano music, the strings, and also sometimes it's just one car passing by and sometimes it's wind and it's whatever fern is actually feeding in that moment. Okay, fantastic. And, and all of the post was done during a kind of lockdown. So you were doing it all virtually wherever people were, you didn't meet anyone. Did you color time no, it we, all we virtually did. as well? We, we did, we, 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 uh, we did sound design at Disney and that was very safely, uh, only certain people allowed in the room and we did color at Harbor safely as well. Can't do those things remotely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything I haven't asked you, anything specific, Josh, that you want to say about the process of working with Chloe and the way you like to work? Josh, well, I think you should mention as a production designer, you should just quickly say, I don't think we ever went into it, about why we didn't build inside a vanguard on stage. Can that speak to the whole idea, yeah. the, 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 you know, the rules? Yeah. One, I mean, one of the rules that you stick to no matter what is um, the decision to shoot real locations, you know, real light, natural light. But also if we're in the squeeze in uh, with Linda May, which is about nine feet by nine feet, that thing, we're in with that's where we're shooting um and there's definitely an authenticity that comes out from a design point of view it's fun as well it's mostly just removing things that might be um hurdles or barriers visually but it's also you just discover things that you just would never think of in production design um and that was fun and we had a really great team it was a total collaboration with the art department with um Elizabeth Goddard and, and, and again, a really small crew who would always be a few steps ahead of us and um, prepping. Well, that, that also affects sound design and, and cinematography. And because, because if a person can't get somewhere inside that van, inside that trailer, the camera shouldn't. And that affects, that's what we talked about actually in sound design inside that small space when two people talk, that intimacy um, and, and if we put a camera somewhere, maybe there's a more a shot that Josh can play around more. And I think he was humble enough to understand it's more important for the audience to believe this is a real moment than to do whatever he wants with cinematography. Yeah, well, there's no point where I felt, you know, the camera suddenly inside of a fridge or in the microwave, you know, I'm not a fan of that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's, that's grounding it always in Fern's perspective um, somehow, but also it's an approach 
Because there was a discussion, wasn't there, Chloe? Uh, you know, because we had a break halfway, and after after weeks of uh, climbing over each other in a tiny van, you're like, why don't we? You know, and Fran's like, why don't we just build the thing? We can take the. And there's another aspect to it, which is like we're making a film about these people in this exact time in America. What a shame not to document that. You know, why fake that? You know, I mean, we take some liberties with Vanguard. Uh, but it's all very carefully based on other vans we've seen, you know, things that I bought to put in that van or even from other vans. And so it's really like a Frankenstein's monster of other vans that we found on the road. But also, but, but then when you're going into Swanky's van, how wonderful to film the real thing. And, and the film then becomes a kind of document of a very particular time in, in America, so. Are there many VFS shots in there? Are there any things where we have to just clean it up? We'll do that in post. We'll oh, cover yeah. that. We'll put totally. the, we'll put the sky the, in. No, Anything? Well, of course, yeah. It's uh, actually uh, the the supervisor is my supervisor on Eternals. So it's, <laughs> uh, we didn't shoot the shot of Jupiter. Uh, no, there's a there's a sky replacement, Josh. Like, um, there's stars. Very hang on, Chloe. Very little sky replacement. You got to be careful with that. No, like two. Zero. There's, there's, do you know what? We won't tell you where it is, but it's in a night sky. That's where the replacement <laughs> We added some, some texture, um, but we added stars uh, into the sky. We removed a lot of things. Usually it's popping my shoulder or, or, you know, sometimes that happens. Um, yeah, right. no, I think it's fine. We're talking to, you're talking to directors, you know, we all know it. To create naturalism, you sometimes have to use the, you know the palette you use the tricks of the trade i um, love cgi i i we've learned so much you know we're thinking like i'm thinking next time i don't have to rush somebody out I'll just brush them out later the light is perfect just stand there it's going to be really interesting to see how the how your career develops it's going to be fascinating <laughs> to see how the next ones go listen how tell me about venice how was that and congratulations Oh, that was a special day, wasn't it? You know, it was also that's because it was a day uh, I, we were premiered in three places at the same time. So it was actually the last day of Venice. And we just, it's the same day we found out we won as the Golden Lion as well. It's the same day that evening we drive into the Rose Bowl and meet all the nomads, haven't seen them for the first time in two years. And it's burning, The you know, California was burning at that time and the ashes falling through the sky and people are honking and flashing their lights as Swanky, Bob Wells, Linda May, and Derek work on the stage. I mean, you just look around, you go, this is why we want to make films with all of our friends and the people that inspire us and the country and the place that inspire us. It's, uh, it was one of the most beautiful moments in our lives. Right, wouldn't you say, Josh? Absolutely, yeah. Fantastic. I think we may be running out of time. Thank you so much. Good luck with the movie. Good luck with everything that comes up. Um, really well deserved, loved it. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>